Well, uh, when I was a young child, uh, which was a long uh, time ago, uh, I remember being very scared of the rapture, very scared of the rapture. In fact, so scared of the rapture that I remember that I was five years old because I was in kindergarten. And my mom and dad had just moved uh, my two sisters and I uh, to the great city of uh, Minneapolis for my dad to go to seminary. And I must have heard something in church, something in Sunday school about the rapture, and it scared me bad. Uh, So badly that I remember for a couple of weeks straight, every night I would wake up at some point during the night, I would get out of my bed and I would go into my mom and dad's room just to make sure that there were two heads there. Not one head, because sometimes I wondered if my dad would actually, you know, you know, when you're five years old. I wanted to make sure there were two heads there because I was fairly confident that if there were two heads in the bed, that that meant that the rapture hadn't taken place and I was good to go. Now, I had no idea what the rapture was all about, had no idea who was going to go at the rapture, but the whole idea was that if my mom and dad were going, I wanted to go too, right? I mean, when you're five years old, that's what you think about. And I remember doing that for a couple weeks. I was scared to death that the rapture was going to happen and I would be left behind. Little did I know that as I would be growing up and I would get into middle school and high school, there would be these movies that some Christian producer somewhere decided would be a great way to freak out little kids in the church. And so I remember, those of you that grew up in church, you're already going, yeah, I saw those movies too. You know what I'm talking about. Those of you that didn't, this is one reason to be thankful that you didn't grow up in church, okay? But I remember, and it always happened, especially on New Year's Eve, for whatever reason, why do you want to scare a little kid on New Year's Eve? They would show us movies by the titles like this, A Distant Thunder. A Distant Thunder? That's scary just to think about. I mean, I was already scared of the rapture. Now they're talking about a distant thunder, and then my favorite, a thief in the night. That Jesus would come like a thief in the night, unannounced, suddenly, and he would be, we would be gone. Oh, great way. Welcome to the new year, right? I grew up very, very scared, especially as a little child, of the end times, and in particular, of the rapture. And maybe... For you here this morning, you didn't grow up scared of the end times, scared of the rapture, but you wonder an awful lot about those things. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I don't want to know anything about it. As far as I'm concerned, I'll be gone. I don't want to know anything about it. As long as I make it on the first load at the rapture, I am good to go. Chuck Swindoll said this. He said that we study prophecy not simply to fill our heads with information, but to change our hearts. And I really hope that the next four weeks that we spend together on these particular subjects, which are so incredibly relevant and very significant themes, especially in the New Testament, that your heart will be uh, filled with information that will actually change your heart and potentially change the way that you live your life. Maybe for some of you, it will actually change your eternal destination based on the truth that you discover these next few weeks. Now, there are two common errors when we uh, study prophecy. The first one is the slip into unwarranted speculation. Uh, I I think that that's what some of those people that uh, wrote uh, the scripts for these particular movies I was talking about, that's where they were. The result is a desire to wring more out of details that are in Scripture than what the Bible actually provides. 
Those people have a tendency to take the prophetic passages and inflate them until the rest of what the Bible says is marginalized and we push Jesus and the gospel to the edges and corners of the page. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you're one of those people. You are so enthralled with prophecy that you, you, you make it out to say more than it actually says. You're confident of things that are actually not clearly taught in Scripture. That's the slip into unwarranted speculation. The, the second common error is this. It's a slip into shoulder-shrugging cynicism. And that's when we get to the point where uh, the result is that we downplay or we ignore completely the end times uh, text that are in the Bible. And we get frustrated that we can't possibly have a balanced understanding, so we simply abandon careful study of prophetic themes in Scripture. And this causes us to decentralize Jesus from our lives rather than to live our lives like I want to challenge you to do this morning with that expectancy of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We have to be careful that we don't swing to either extreme. And a careful study of prophecy can give us a greater zeal for sharing Jesus with others and living our lives knowing that he can return at any moment. Now, a well-intended overemphasis on end times has been known to drive people to write and to do some incredibly foolish things. I want to give just a few of those to you this morning. People you know, and you've seen this on TV, you've seen it in magazines where people are standing on street corners and they're carrying huge placards that say what? Turn or burn. The end is near. And they got those sandwich boards and they're walking down the street corners in New York City and other large cities. You've seen those people that are so preoccupied with those uh, little uh, barcodes on certain packages and everyone they look at, they're reading to see if really is that the mark of the beast. I think I see 666 in there someplace. We've seen those things happen. Do you know only a couple of decades after Jesus uh, died and then he rose again and went back to heaven, there were false prophets in the, th- in the city of Thessaloniki. And in that particular city, there were false prophets that were there that were telling people, that were actually teaching people that Jesus had already come. And if they were still here, guess what? You've been left behind. In fact, that was part of the reason why Paul actually wrote his two uh, letters to to the Thessalonians, to make sure that they understood that Jesus had not come back already, that he was expectant on Jesus' return, but that Jesus had not come back. In the fourth century, a popular church leader named Martin of Tours I would kind of, do you ever wonder when you read things like that and you go, Martin of Tours, why can't I be like Brian of Carey instead of just Brian Eisner? I'd like to, that's neither here nor there, but he was a popular church leader probably because he wasn't just Martin, but because if he was Martin of Tours. He declared that the Antichrist had already been born and that the ruler would rise to power in his lifetime. Now, since that was the fourth century, we can be fairly assured that he was wrong, Right? And those of you that have thought at times that some of our political leaders are the Antichrist, you're probably wrong as well. A monk named Rodolphus Glaber, translated Ralph the Bald, true story, described a wave of apocalyptic worries in the decades around the year AD 1000. According to Ralph the Bald, listen to this, he had seen a blazing sign in the heavens that predicted a mysterious fire at his monastery. And fears of impending doom and tribulation deepened when a famine struck on the 1,000-year anniversary of the death of Jesus. Despite the worries, the monastery was repaired and the famine passed, and Ralph remained bald, and life went on. 
1534, a Dutch baker named Jan claimed that a new Jerusalem would soon appear in Munster, Germany. After a supposed series of visions, Jan and his followers took over the city of Munster. Uh, One of Jan's cohorts declared himself, get this, the successor to the biblical king David. How would you like to do that? I just simply declare myself the successor to King David. And when he did that, he took 16 wives for himself. I just wonder about that. In the end, a new Jerusalem did not arrive in Munster, but a rival army did. And get this, the corpses of the revolutionaries were suspended above that city of Munster, Germany, in iron cages. And if you were to go to that city today, those iron cages still hang from steeples in the cathedral of St. Lambert's Church. Silent reminders of an apocalyptic expectation that had obviously gone terribly wrong. 300 years later, a man that many of you are familiar with, Joseph Smith, claimed that Jesus would establish the New Jerusalem in Jackson County, Missouri. In the process, he launched a worldwide religious movement that denies to this day some of the essential biblical truths about Jesus Christ. Still today, Mormons expect that Jesus Christ will return, and when he returns, he will return somewhere along the eastern outskirts of Kansas City, Missouri. I'm here to tell you I've been to Kansas City, Missouri. He's not coming there. (laughs) Maybe the state just slightly north of that in Nebraska, he potentially could arrive there. I have some other friends from Nebraska with me here this morning, so I can say that for their benefit. Moving into the 20th century, in 1987, a retired NASA engineer named Edgar Wisenat published a pamphlet, and some of you will remember this, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. He targeted three days in September and boldly proclaimed that the only way he was wrong is if the Bible was in error. And when those three days, when Jesus didn't return, when the end of time did not happen, he boldly proclaimed, I don't know how, once again, that he was off by just a few days and gave a few more days in which it might happen. It didn't happen, obviously. We're still here. He was wrong. You know, I noticed as I was studying this week and I went to Amazon, I noticed that there is actually a copy of that particular pamphlet that's on Amazon right now. You can buy it for 50 bucks. Who would pay $50 for 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. I wish I would have kept mine. About the same time as that, when we were getting over that, a man named David Koresh was leading a group of people and urging them to see themselves as the students of the seven seals of Revelation. He convinced his followers that the end time prophecies would be fulfilled at his compound, not in Kansas City, Missouri, but in Waco, Texas. And in 1993, many of you remember that story, David Koresh and 75 of his followers died after a 51-day siege on their compound. And even today, in the 21st century, many people are convinced, and were convinced even at the turn of the millennium, that in the year 2000, Y2K, that would be the end. Anybody remember that? I had friends telling me that I should stockpile rice, which I don't know why, because I don't even like rice, rice and beans, and bottled water, and you, you should make sure that you have ammunition. Some people that I very much respected that became convinced that Y2K was the end and we had to do this. <laughs> you remember, right? The clock struck midnight, the ball came down in New York City, and nothing happened. 
And then it was only last year, in 2011, that a man boldly proclaimed that he knew when the time was, when the rapture would happen, when the end would be near, and it was May 21st. And when May 21st didn't happen, he said he miscalculated that it would be on my anniversary, October 21st. And I'm here to tell you that it is December 8th, and we're still here. What is it? What did I say? It's December? <laughs> and that's why I need clean eating right there. It's January 8th, not December 8th. It's January 8th. could be December 8th, and we wouldn't still be here, but it's January 8th. And even now, if you've been following the media, even this week, I saw several stories where um, people are convinced that according to the ancient Mayan calendar, that 2012 is it. That's the year of apocalypse. Everything ends. We don't know when the end is going to happen. We don't know when the rapture is going to occur, but we can be assured that it will happen. And here's what we do know. We know that the next event on God's prophetic calendar is indeed the rapture. There's nothing that has to happen yet before Jesus returns in the clouds for those of us that know him. Everything is set for the imminent return of Christ. And we believe in that. We affirm that this morning. If you are here and you call Northwest Community Church your home, we affirm that doctrine. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And we call that the rapture. This is the event that marks the beginning of the end, but for those of us as Christ followers, it's an exciting time because it marks the beginning of eternity for us. So what is the rapture? I'm going to assume this morning, in fact, I think it's a fairly safe assumption that there are some of you, this is very new to you. I realize that others of you that are here, you are students of prophecy, and you may say, but boy, there's so much that could be said. Uh, There is. I'm not going to say it all today, all right? But I want to give you some of just the basics so that you understand some of this terminology. The term rapture is actually never found in Scripture. Uh, The the term that is uh, translated rapture, uh, we'll read here in just a few moments in 1 Thessalonians 4 in verse 17. The word rapture comes from Paul's word that he uses there, which means caught up. The words caught up are translated from a Greek word, which means to carry off or to snatch up or to grasp hastily. And so the translation from that Greek word uh, to a Latin word, rapto, and then from that Latin word, rapto, we got our English word, rapture, which literally means just to snatch away, to grab quickly. And when we refer to the rapture, we refer to the return of the Lord for us to meet him in the air. We look at this as happening at any moment. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus. Now, I think it's very important for you to understand at the outset that um, I believe, and I believe Scripture clearly teaches, that Jesus will come back twice. Once he will come in the clouds, and he will be coming for those of us that know him as our Savior, both dead and those that are at that particular moment living. He's also going to come again at the end of the tribulation to establish his thousand-year reign on the earth, and we refer to that as his second coming. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 24 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I believe those events to be very distinct. An easy way for you to remember it is this, that in the rapture, Jesus comes back in the clouds and he comes for us. We're not with him. When he comes back for the second time, he will come to earth and he will come with us as a conquering king at that particular time. 
Now, everyone who takes the Bible literally, in other words, anyone who believes this to be the inspired, uh, inerrant word of God, literally, most of those people believe in the return of Jesus. But a careful reading of Scripture makes it very clear that, that Jesus will return for us. And that's why I don't think that you can have a very high view of Scripture and believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and not come to that conclusion. I want to show you just a couple of foundational texts. Some of them will be very familiar to many of you. In John chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, uh, I want to look at those uh, first three verses uh, together. You have to remember that Jesus was talking to his disciples and he had told his disciples that he was going to be betrayed and the things that were going to be happening to him and that he was going to go away from them. And they were very, very troubled by these things. And so Jesus, to bring comfort to his disciples, said these things that, are, that John records for us in chapter 14. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. Other translations say many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. And I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you might be also. A very foundational text that we understand that Jesus is going to return. He's going to return for us. He right now is in heaven, and he's preparing a place for us. And we can only imagine, since it's taken him almost 2,000 years now, that it must be quite the place. We're going to talk about that as the last uh, uh, session in this particular series. We're going to talk about heaven and what heaven is going to be like and what we can expect in heaven. The Thessalonian church was ignorant of what had happened to those that had died before uh, Jesus' return. And some of their brothers and sisters had actually died, and they were wondering if, uh, if they would miss the coming of the Lord. And so Paul wrote a letter to them, and that letter, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he made it very clear to them what would happen to those of us that had died prior to Jesus coming for us in the clouds. If you have your Bible again, turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 and look down at verse 13. A very familiar passage of Scripture. We use it a lot at funerals because it brings great comfort. I think you'll see why here in just a moment. Paul wrote to the church at Thessaloniki. He said this in verse 13. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, that's not like some of you this morning, okay? That means those of you, we don't want you to be ignorant about those brethren, those people that have literally died. So that you don't grieve as do the rest who have no hope. In other words, those who have died without Jesus. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. Now, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but let me just stop here for just a moment. If you're here this morning and you believe that you're going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, if you believe that your sin debt is going to be paid by anything other than Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross, you will be eternally disappointed. Look what Paul wrote to these people. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's how we know eternity is secure. Not because of how good you are, not because of how much money you give the church, not because of how you live your life, but what you've done with his son, Jesus Christ. Even so, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That means we're not going first. 
those that have died in Jesus, they've trusted in Christ alone as their Savior, they get to go first. Can you picture the scene on that particular day? I know you've seen pictures. You've seen them on the internet. Maybe you've seen them hanging on your grandma's wall in her house with the rapture and the graves opening up and people flying up in the air. The people who have died in Christ, they are the first ones to go. We're not going to precede those, Paul said, who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now remember, this all happens like this. In the twinkling of an eye, in the snap of a finger, the rapture takes place. The dead are joining their spirits in the air, and Jesus is waiting for them. And then verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, will be raptured, will be snatched up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. And I love what he wrote in verse 18. What should we do? Therefore, we comfort one another with these words. That's why we share a text like this when we're at the graveside of that person that has died in Christ. Because we know that hope is alive. We know that eternity is sure. And it will seem like just a moment to that person whose whose earthly shell has been put into that grave before we go to be with Jesus. It will seem like just a moment for them. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. It means we won't all die, but we're all going to be changed. Verse 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will raise, be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. What awesome verses. All you have to accept is the reality of the truth of Scripture to understand that Jesus is going to return. I don't have to go in and explain this text in the original Greek language. It's very clear in the English language. Jesus is going to come back for us. He is going to snatch us away. Whether we're laying our earthly bodies or laying there in the grave or whether we are still alive, he is going to return. This event, the rapture, is so clearly taught in the Bible that it's all but impossible to deny. Now, I believe in the rapture because I believe in the gospel. I believe in the death, burial, and the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the the rapture is very much linked to redemption. Adrian Rogers, who is now with Jesus, wrote in his book about end times, he said this, If you have Calvary without the rapture, it's like having up without down or night without day. You can't have the incarnation without the coronation. However, there are several different views as to the exact timing of the rapture. And what's so unfortunate to me is that there are bitter disagreements which lead to broken relationships between people who really love Jesus. And, and, and they long for his return and they, they love his word. And there are disagreements which unfortunately have separated pastors, they've separated churches. And I want to make it very clear to you today, I know most of you are probably where I am, that God is not pleased with that. If you're here this morning and you are so mired down into the intricacies of prophecy that aren't clearly taught in Scripture... I beg of you to walk away from those arguments that mean nothing. Study the scripture, 
Be convinced of truth based on your study of Scripture, but don't argue over things that aren't clearly defined in Scripture. I have friends of mine right now uh, that think that I have made horrible mistakes in my associations with people because they don't believe what I believe about the millennial kingdom. I know at the very least that the millennial kingdom, I believe there is a millennial kingdom, whether there is or not, that is going to be so far past after the rapture. And when that rapture takes place and I see Jesus like he is, everything's going to be straight. And my friend then will be premillennial in his view of eschatology. I get that. He no longer will deny the millennium. But up until that point, I say to you, I'm not sure that that matters. And I have chosen relationships with brothers that have slight disagreements with me on eschatology over separation over trivial matters. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't study these things. We should. Now let me, in being fair to all of my friends who hold different views which are incorrect, which they will soon... I say that in jest, obviously. Let me give you those views, okay, about the rapture. Many of you are familiar with this, but some of you, you're new Christ followers, and you're not familiar with this. I at least want to tell you what these people believe, and then I'm going to tell you what I believe and what we hold to here at Northwest and why we hold to that. Some people believe in the mid-tribulational rapture. Very simple terminology because they simply believe what? That we're going to be here for three and a half years. And then suddenly, at the three and a half year mark, Uh, Jesus is going to come back for us, and he's going to snatch us away. So they believe that the rapture occurs at the middle of the tribulation, that believers endure the first half. I, because I don't like pain, choose not to believe in that uh, particular view. That's obviously not the reason why. Then there's those who believe in a post-tribulation rapture. That is, the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation. You don't get just three and a half years. You get seven years of it if you're a post-tribber, as we commonly refer to them. Then there are others who believe in a partial rapture. I've said that to several people over the years, and they're going, you're kidding, right? No, there are people that believe in a partial rapture. They believe this, that committed believers go before the tribulation, and carnal Christians endure the tribulation, and then are raptured at the end of the tribulation. Now, I really like that view just from a practical standpoint. I'd love to hold to that view. Because I just use it for counseling. If I, I just sit in my office and go, okay, I know you're a Christ follower, but if you don't start behaving, you're going through the tribulation, all right? Because you are a carnal Christian. I'd really like that. I'd really love it if I found that to be true in Scripture. I, I don't. Now, in fairness to these views, I'm not this morning going to give you all the proof text and the Scripture that those who hold to these other views, why they hold to those views. I would tell you to study those things for yourself. That's the confidence that I have in you, that we've taught you to be students of the Word. I want you to understand and know the Word. I want you to be a self-feeder. And and you'll notice at the bottom of your notes this morning, I've uh, given you a book there. Uh, The first one, not the one by Max Licato. Great book, by the way, if you want to be encouraged about uh, prophetic things. The one before that is a great manual. It was just finished in July of 2011. Uh, put together by a professor at Southern Seminary in Kentucky. And you will thoroughly enjoy that if you want to study these things further. And he does a good job of going through and explaining each one of these views, what he believes to be truth and why he believes that, but also why others hold to different views regarding the rapture. I hold to, and we hold here at Northwest, to a pre-tribulation rapture which means all those that have trusted in Christ alone as our Savior, when that trumpet blows, whether we are dead in the grave or whether we're alive, we will be snatched up, we will be caught up with Jesus in the air, 
and we'll go to be with him. And then the tribulation period will begin. Now, here's why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Just real quick, all right? I don't want to get up on my own soapbox, but let me just give you a few reasons. First of all, the Lord promised to deliver us. If you look at uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 10, John, when writing to one of the churches, says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. So number one is the Lord promised to deliver us. Number two, the church is to be delivered from the wrath to come. If you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, number three says Christians are not appointed to wrath, to experience that wrath of God. And here I think is one of the biggest reasons why I hold to a pre-tribulational view, and that is that the church is absent from Revelation 4 all the way to Revelation 18. The church is mentioned 17 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, but after John is called up to heaven at the beginning of chapter 4, he looks down on the events of the tribulation, and the church is not mentioned again until chapter 19 when she returns to earth with her bridegroom, with Jesus, at his glorious appearing. Now, why is that? I would submit to you that the reason why the church isn't mentioned is because the church is not in the tribulation period. The church has been raptured. I hope you're convinced. Now, there are those that respond that if we ever see the rapture occur, they don't necessarily believe in the rapture. They're not Christ followers. But if they ever see the rapture occur, that is at that particular moment, when they see somebody flying through the air, that they'll do what? They will simply bend the knee. They will confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and life will go on. I caution some of you that may be here today, and you are skeptical of the claims of Jesus in the Bible. I caution you to that that view. First of all, you don't know that you'll be here when the rapture occurs, right? There are many, many Christ followers who are in their tombs today. Their bodies are there. Their spirits are with the Lord. Their bodies are in the tomb. They won't be here at that moment of the rapture to make a decision about Jesus Christ. People have anticipated Christ's return for hundreds of years. And and number two is this. You don't really want to be here for the tribulation. There are some people, and we'll talk about the tribulation next week, there are some people uh, that believe that uh, people will not come to Christ during the tribulation period. Um, I'll share with you next week why I don't believe uh, that that's true. I believe people will come to Christ in the tribulation. However, those people are commonly referred to during the tribulation period as what? Martyrs. That's pain. For a guy who doesn't like pain, that just means, I don't really want to be here. If I'm convinced that that God sent his son Jesus to suffer and bleed and die on a cross, and then by placing my trust in Christ alone as my Savior, I can enjoy a relationship with him. My sin debt can be paid in full. Why would I wait to find out if people are actually going to fly through the air? I think I'll do that now. Now, now follow this with me as we come to a conclusion here today. We are the bride of Christ, right? We see that in Ephesians 5 Many places throughout Scripture, I love the analogy that we as the church, we are the bride of Christ. That's an awesome thing. And as a result of being the bride of Christ, we should eagerly be waiting for our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, to come for us. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings. In fact, because I was a youth pastor for so long, I have had the privilege of being involved in, I'm going to say dozens, but it may be a hundred or more weddings at this point. And I love Love, love weddings, all right? I don't love to pay for weddings. That's why I've told my daughter she's never getting married. But I love going to weddings 
when other people are praying for it, like Chuck Regal. I love that. When it's you that's paying the bill. That's awesome. Here's what I've always found out to be true at every wedding that I've gone to. And there are a number of brides in this room that I've officiated your wedding. I've stood before you and your groom. Here's one thing that I always know to be true. Whether it's a big wedding, whether it's a small wedding, whether it's an elaborate wedding or a simple wedding, I've been to them all. One thing holds true in all of those weddings, and it's this. The bride is always prepared for her groom. Always. There has not been one wedding that I've been to where I went, what was she thinking? Did you look in the mirror this morning? I know when you went to bed last night, everything looked good, but it doesn't look good any. Never have I thought that. In fact, I'm the guy always that gets to stand, and I get the best seat in the house. When she walks in at the back of that auditorium, and she's standing there with her dad, and, and they begin to walk down the aisle, and, and I go, wow. And I always look over at the groom, and he's going, and I'm going, dude, you are so out of your league. Look at her. Man. She's always been beautiful, but wow, look what she's done. And her dress is awesome. Her hair is awesome. Her makeup is just perfect. Any little imperfection on her face, it has been painted. She looks fantastic. She's got beautiful flowers in her hands. Her nails are done. And you're going, I saw her last night. They weren't that long. No, they've been fixed. They're awesome. She's got beautiful shoes on. She's probably been to a tanning booth. Everything is awesome. You understand where I'm going, right? She is prepared to meet her groom. If you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, and you don't have to read a lot of Scripture to be convinced of that, you will be prepared for the bridegroom. You're going to make sure that you're ready. If you believe that it's imminent, if you believe that it could happen at any moment, you're going to make sure that you're ready. Let me give you just five quick reasons. Number one, you're going to make sure that you're ready by making sure of your salvation. You see, here's the thing that you need to understand. Not everybody's going to be raptured on that day. Many will indeed be left behind to suffer through that tribulation period. And ultimately, at the end of this period, ultimately to be judged at that great white throne judgment. Luke wrote in chapter 17, verses 34 to 37, I tell you that on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Not everybody's going. Only those who are trusting in Christ alone as their Savior. Number two, you're going to want to share your story. You're going to want to share the gospel with other people. If you really want to be prepared, if you really want to be a bride that's prepared for that bridegroom, Jesus Christ, you're going to share your story. That's why you've been left on this planet. That's why I've been left on this planet. Not simply to amuse myself. Do you know that everything that I do on this planet can be accomplished better if I was in heaven except for sharing the good news of the gospel with people that have never heard? That's why we've been left here. Number three, if you really want to be prepared, you're going to live a holy life. Turn, turn with me just real quick to the book of Romans. 
uh, chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Paul wrote this, Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And we still know that to be true, by the way. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. If you really believe that the return of Christ is imminent and you are living your life right now as a Christ follower, but you are not living a holy life, I say stop it and begin to live a holy life so that you are prepared for your bridegroom. Number four, if you are eagerly waiting and anticipating your bridegroom, you're going to serve. If you really believe that Jesus could come back today, you're going to be busy doing the things that matter rather than simply living your life for yourself and for your own pleasure. And then lastly, number five, we'll live our lives with open hands. We talked about that just a couple months ago. We'll live with generous lives. Your life will be marked by generosity. You'll understand that when he comes, you aren't going to get a chance to do any estate planning. Whatever you've done is done. And so you live your lives with open hands, knowing that in just a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it can all be gone and none of it will really matter. Let me close with this story. Many of you uh, remember in 1989 uh, the Armenian earthquake. In fact, that earthquake earthquake needed only four minutes to flatten the nation and kill 30,000 people. Moments after the deadly tremor ceased, a father raced to an elementary school to save his son. When he arrived, he saw that the building had been leveled. Looking at the mass of stones and rubble, he remembered a promise that he'd made to his child. No matter what happens, the dad said to his son, I'll always be there for you. Driven by his own promise, he found an area closet, an area closet that was closest to his son's room, and he began to pull back the rocks. Other parents arrived and began sobbing for their children. It's too late, they told the man. You know they're dead. You can't help. Even a police officer encouraged him to give up, but the father refused. And for eight hours, and then 16, and then 32, and then 36 hours, he dug. His hands were literally raw, and his energy was gone, but he refused to quit. And finally, after 38 wrenching hours, he pulled back a boulder and heard his son's voice. True story. He called his boy's name, Armin, Armin. And a voice answered, Dad, it's me. Then the boy added these priceless words. I told the other kids not to worry. I told them that if you were alive, you'd save me. And when you saved me, they'd be saved too because you promised. And no matter what, I'll always be there for you. You said that. Max Lucado wrote this. God has made the same promise to us. I will come back. He assures us of that. Yes, the rocks will tumble. Yes, the ground will shake. But the child of God need not fear, for the Father has promised to take us with him. Isn't that awesome? We know he's coming back. He's not going to leave us here. And you may seem really desperate here today, and, and your life may not be anything close to what you imagine it to be. But we have the hope of the rapture. And that's an awesome thing. And that's why we study these things. They give us hope. They give us encouragement. 
Hope for eternity. Hope for the future.